At this time, we'll turn our attention to the reading and preaching of God's word. We'll now hear the scripture passage read by Shen. Our reading today is from Colossians 4, 2-6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Tara George, and I'm the Director of Family Discipleship here at Grace Toronto Church. And if you're just joining us, welcome. We've been in a sermon series in the book of Colossians, looking at what it means to live in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we find ourselves at the end of our series in chapter 4, because here, at the end of his letter, Paul invites his readers into a movement that is about to go viral. It is a movement based on the reality of Jesus Christ, and it both requires and inspires our full participation. It is that newsworthy. Well, recently I read an article in the New York Times where author Vanessa Friedman commented that the vaccine selfie has gone viral. Maybe you've posted one yourself or you've seen it in the social media in uh, your friends' posts. I know I've seen a lot of these appearing in my newsfeed. And if you don't know what this is, it usually involves a person revealing their arm with a Band-Aid. Uh, they have a smile, some hashtags, and an encouragement to go get vac- vaccinated. Maybe you've seen it before. But as Friedman has observed this trend, she comments that the selfie trend seems to work astonishingly well in two ways. First, that it celebrates being protected. And second, that it encourages others in your network, trusted friends and family, to consider receiving this protection. She writes this, In the drive toward herd immunity, the vaccine selfie plays a key role. No longer simply an expression of vanity or lifestyle humble brag, it has effectively turned the crowd, witting or not, into healthcare proselytizers. Isn't that interesting? She says that whatever you may think about the vaccine, it seems to reveal something really interesting about us. Our culture seems to know intuitively that good news ought to be personally enjoyed, yes, but that really good news, good news that concerns everyone, deserves to be publicly shared and even proselytized. Good news matters for everyone. And in our passage today, I think Paul makes a similar argument. He identifies that the best news, that of the gospel, requires us to both believe it personally, but also to share it publicly. And so Paul here in this passage invites us into this viral gospel movement. He asks us to do two things. First, to pray for the good news. And second, to speak the good news. Pray for the good news and speak the good news. Let's start with praying for the good news. And if you're just joining us, Paul has been speaking to the Colossians about this new life that a person has through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at what this new life entails, how it affects our ethics, our priorities, our behaviors. It concerns how we treat each other how we behave when no one's looking, and it even has implications on our marriages and our families. 
And by the end of chapter 3, you really get the sense that there is no, there's virtually no aspect of your public or private life that goes untouched by the gospel. Jesus changes everything. Allegiance to Jesus means faithfulness in all areas of life. And that's a tall order. Maybe you've been thinking that as you've heard this book preached from week to week. How are we to do all these things that God has asked of us? This sounds really, really difficult. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And I think that's why Paul summarizes all these instructions here with an encouragement to pray. Because as we'll see, it has implications not just for your own faith journey, but also for your public witness to others. Paul says here, continue steadfastly in prayer. The stakes are high, so ask the Lord diligently to help you live the resurrection life well. You need this. This instruction to pray was given to you, Christian, for your flourishing. As you ponder the Christian life and all that's commanded of you, you are not to be daunted. You're not to be daunted. The same God who asks you to pray is determined to supply you and the church with everything necessary to live the Christian life well. You are to fight against sin. You are to grow in the likeness of Jesus. Your life and conduct are to look radically different from the culture around you. How will you do this if not by prayer and dependence on God? I need to tell you that good preaching and teaching will only do so much. If you are relying on the man in the pulpit to give you everything you need spiritually for the week, you will grow grossly disappointed with the Christian life. It's just not enough. It's not enough. It is of vital importance to your salvation and your fruitfulness that you should learn to pray regularly, diligently for yourself and others. Pray steadfastly. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving, as Paul says. Because here's why this matters. Scholars think that what Paul is doing is commissioning these believers whom he loves. He's in prison, and this letter is among several others that he writes near the end of his ministry. Paul has preached the gospel with all his might. He has suffered uh, sufferings, hardships, antagonism of every kind. What is to happen to this gospel after he's gone? His answer is clear in the text. You continue. You be steadfast now. You be watchful as you make a stand for the gospel. The way the gospel moves forward, the way your life stays track, on track is going to be determined by how you pray. Your ability to live the Christian life well, the ongoing purity of the church, and the continuing impact on the gospel on the world all depend now on how you will pray. I wonder, do you find that encouraging or discouraging? Does it surprise you to hear that the success of your Christian life depends on how you will pray? I know many of you are tired. Many of you feel discouraged by your lack of spiritual growth, especially in this season. Let me suggest that maybe what you need right now to bolster your faith isn't actually an in-person sermon, service or a, a stirring sermon or, or maybe even the latest Christian book. Maybe what you need right now to bolster your faith more than anything else is to have your heart warmed in prayer and fellowship with your Heavenly Father. You need this daily. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, it's quite possible that you find this entire concept of prayer quite ridiculous. 
It was English novelist, I believe, Samuel Butler, who famously wrote these words. Prayers are to men as dolls are to children. They are not without use and comfort, but it's not easy to take them very seriously. In fact, I think it's fair to say that our culture generally takes this view. Prayer might make you feel better, but it can't be taken very seriously. And yet it's ironic that the gift of a doll to a child often does communicate something very serious, doesn't it? In gifting a doll to a child, a parent communicates his or her most tender love. You see, the doll itself is not the object of affection as if this were somehow the source of comfort. No. Rather, it's meant to point the child towards the parent with affection who is the comforter. Skeptic, do you see why this matters? In calling people to pray, Paul is not calling you to be enamored with dolls. He is calling you through prayer to be enamored with your heavenly Father. Parents, do you remember the last time you gave a stuffed animal or a doll to your child? Why did you do that? What were you trying to communicate, I wonder? You see, if prayers are to men and women as dolls are to children, then ironically, we have the greatest hope. If Butler is right, then the Christian has every assurance that God loves them and longs to hear from them as surely as the earthly parent who does with their child. If prayers are to men and women as dolls are to children, then you ought to take them that much more seriously. It is a precious gift that reflects the heart of a heavenly parent. Prayer becomes the greatest assurance that God loves us. We get to ask God for some pretty enormous things. I think that's why Paul says in the same breath here, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Our prayers are to be for things good and necessary for ourselves, but most especially, most especially for the mission of the gospel. We want to be people who not only consume the gospel for ourselves, but who long to see it reproduced in others. We are praying that God would open a door for the word of Christ to be declared everywhere and to everyone. And it's interesting, as you read this text, that Paul talks about this word in an almost personified way. This word is personified, it is living and active, and has the power to transform people. He refers to this actually earlier in chapter 1 when he describes how this word came to the Colossians. In chapter 1, he says this, that indeed, in the whole world, this word is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. This is the goal. This is the goal. Paul wants the same word that transformed these Colossians to now go forth into the nations with power. Now that these Colossians have received the word and it's bearing fruit and increasing them in them, they're being called to pray that the gospel goes further still. Christian, now that you have received this word and it's bearing fruit and increasing in your life, you are being called to the very same task. When the church prays, the gospel moves. Let me say that Christianity is the most widely practiced religion in the world with the most diverse adherence of any faith. The gospel has crossed continents, languages, cultures, and entire centuries. A movement that started in a small Galilean house with 12 men has gone out to every corner of the globe, and it is needing to go further still. 
men and women, the gospel of Jesus Christ has been passed on for 2,000 years. It has traveled too far now to stop with you. There is an urgency to pray for the mission of the gospel, both in our city and the world. And here's why. Scholars estimate that the current North American church is more wealthy and more resourceful and more learned than any other generation before us. And yet, it's believed that we are more impoverished in the practice of prayer than maybe ever before. We are a generation of bright, ambitious young people who want to change the world with our hands, but don't want to do it on our knees. And please hear me right. This is my generation. I am so much like this. We value productivity more than prayer, and that functionally means that we believe that our effort and our work is more necessary and more effective than God's. Let it not be so. I want you to see from this passage that prayer is not a distraction from a more important work. Prayer is the important work. We must do this. Grace Toronto, we must be a praying church. All our resources, all our initiatives, all our cultural capital and commitment to the city will do nothing if we do not pray. Paul is calling the entire church, not just leaders, to do this. We ought to do this together. Pray that you would increasingly live the resurrection life, yes, but more than that, pray that the gospel would go forth into the nations with power and clarity. Because the world is broken and lost and desperately needs to hear this good news. Pray steadfastly for the good news to impact your life and that of others. Second, Paul says you are to speak the good news. You are to pray for it, yes, most certainly, but you are to speak it. Paul here has just asked for prayer, namely that we would speak the good news, he would speak the good news clearly as he ought to. And then in verses 5 to 6, there's a transition He tells the church how they also are now to speak the good news. Paul makes clear that this call to proclaim the gospel is not for him alone, nor is it just for elders and leaders in the church, but it is for everyone who calls themselves a Christian. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Now, the Greek word here for outsiders refers to those outside the faith, those who don't know Jesus. Paul is a missionary, and he wants for believers to live in such a way that others would be drawn to Christ. As you probably know and you've discovered, this requires great wisdom. And Paul knows that. He's been anticipating it. In chapter 1, Paul's pattern of prayer for the Colossians, well, it's really quite remarkable. He says in verse 9, from the day we heard about your faith, we have not ceased to pray. There's that theme of prayer again. For you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in what? All spiritual wisdom. Paul is praying that the church, the spirit, would give the church wisdom. Why? Well, he continues in verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Do you see? His letter has been gradually building up to this point. He's explained the gospel, told you how to practice it personally in your life, and the goal now is that you would be unleashed to unashamedly and holy and graciously speak this word to others. This is the goal. This is the point. As you go out and interact with the world, 
As you busy yourself with work, school, friendships, hobbies, you are to be exceedingly fruitful for the gospel. You are called after the mission of Jesus Christ to proclaim the gospel in word and deed to outsiders. This is your task. Now, if you're not a Christian, I would imagine that this would probably bother you. Why can't you just practice your faith privately? Why do you have to stick it in everyone's face? And to that, I want to say two things. First, the New York Times author showed us earlier, all of us get swept up in a culture of proselytizing. Whether you support vaccination or pro-choice or BLM, let's be honest for a moment. We are all on a mission to convert people. And why not? If you really felt like what you had was good news for everyone, wouldn't you want it known? I think you would. I think you would. Second, you should know that most Christians are actually fairly nervous to speak openly about their faith. The gospel compels us to tell the truth in love, but the truth is also hard to swallow. Paul says in this passage that we are to make the best use of the time because the time is short. The Bible teaches that one day this crucified but risen Jesus will return and he will undo all that is broken, hurting, and sad. And when he returns, those who have trusted in him will live with him forever and those who do not will suffer eternally for their sins. Now admittedly, having someone tell you that probably sounds offensive. But I would commend to you the words of atheist Pendulet, author of New York Times bestseller, God No, Signs You May Already Be an Atheist. He says this, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. If you really believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? He says, I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I would tackle you. And this is more important than that. Listen, these are the words of a staunch atheist who takes serious issue with Christianity, but he understands ultimately what is at stake. You see, if the gospel is true, and I believe it is, there's nothing more important I could be doing to love my neighbor than to tell them the truth about Jesus Christ. Forget your reputation or the social awkwardness this might cause. What could you personally lose by evangelism that could be worse than someone's eternal destiny? Christian, you are called to take this responsibility seriously. So you know, these are not my words. These are not the words of the Apostle Paul. Jesus himself says this in Matthew 10. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. The salvation of many in our city depend on God's sovereignty, yes, but it also depends on your obedience. It matters. This is not optional. You hold in your hands the words of eternal life, and you ought not to withhold it from anyone. Too many of us, I think, labor under the assumption that if I just do good works and I'm kind and caring and loving, people will eventually ask me about the gospel. 
in our modern secular world, you need to know that that won't work. It won't. Our culture right now is so geared towards self-betterment that even if someone were to see something they admire in your life, they are more likely to try and be like you than to be remotely interested in the gospel that you believe. If you don't tell people about the gospel, they'll just think you're a great person. They will. People will see the fruit of the gospel in you, a changed and beautiful life, but you, not God, will take credit for it. By not preaching the gospel, you will inadvertently be teaching people that they have the power in themselves to become just as good and wise and loving as you. Your life will signal to the world the very opposite of what you are trying to proclaim. Words and what you say matters. This is why Paul says so clearly, let your speech Your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer, answer each person. In your everyday speech, whether casual or overt, you are to be gracious. I don't need to tell you that there are well-intentioned people in the church eager to proclaim the gospel who do so without graciousness. This matters profoundly to the gospel. Paul cares about this. The gospel witness depends on it. Our speech here, he says, is to be seasoned with salt. Now, salt is a fairly common thing for us today. We regard it as this thing that makes our fries tasty. But that's not what Paul means here. Salt in the ancient world was incredibly valuable. Aside from bringing out flavor, it also had properties of healing and preservation. Paul is saying that our speech ought to be the same way. In the midst of a world that is broken and in moral decay, our words ought to help heal, preserve, and flavor the culture. This is what our speech is to do. And the goal of all this is that we would know how to answer people. We want to be people who wisely know how to deliver good news in the right way to each person. InterVarsity Press offers a great approach to help Christians consider how to do this well. In a book titled, I Once Was Lost, authors Doug Schaup and Don Everett review stories from literally hundreds of people about how they came to trust in Jesus. And in all these conversations, they notice that there are several things that all these stories seem to have in common. And they concluded that there are five main thresholds that that person typically crosses in their journey from being a skeptic to becoming a Christian. Here they are. Number one is trust. A person finds himself able to trust a Christian, even if they might not agree with what you say or believe. Your life and conduct signals to them that Christianity is safe. It's not crazy. Second is curiosity. A person moves from being indifferent about the gospel to being kind of curious about it. They start to have questions, some really hard ones, but they're wanting to know more. Third is openness. A person moves from being relatively closed to being open to examining the claims of Christianity. They might venture into a church or your small group or be willing to share something really personal with you. Listen, be attentive. And before seeking, a person begins to desire the gospel's implications personally in their own life. They don't have it all. They don't understand everything, but they sense that the gospel is good, that it's worth exploring and considering. And finally, five is following. A person makes a decision to believe and trust in Jesus. 
This is a really useful and great book. I would highly recommend it that you check it out. Because the really cool thing about this resource and about this gospel witness is this, that if you pay close enough attention to the people in your life, if you are watchful, as Paul says, you'll begin to notice that everyone you encounter is somewhere on this spectrum. They really are. And there are things that you can do and say that are really helpful in meeting people where they are and nurturing their seeking. And simultaneously, there are things that you can do and say that would actually be really harmful and counterproductive to a person if they're not ready to hear it. We ought to take this seriously. Every person is so complex and beautifully different, and I think that's why Paul simply says, walk with wisdom. Do this. Walk with wisdom. We have to learn how to do this well and become good students of the culture that we live in. It means that we have to become good students of the gospel, that we would know how to articulate it well to different kinds of people. It means that we should pray for people, that we should be thoughtful, intentional, and gracious as we pursue them in love. Because here's the crux of the gospel. Jesus came to pursue us in love. He prayed for the gospel and he spoke the gospel in all that he did. He preached the good news of salvation for people knowing full well what it would cost him at the cross. Good news required that he take upon himself all the sins of God's people and this same good news then compelled him to commission them afterwards. This is what we celebrate today on Pentecost. Men and women, because of what Christ has done, you have been called to glorious participation in the redemption of the world. In the redemption of the world, you have been entrusted with the most important news on the face of the planet. You are to pray for it and speak it with your life. It matters. And let me tell you that as you do that, you will be floored by the way God impacts those around you. You really will. I remember back in university when I first began exploring the gospel personally for myself. I didn't know all that much, but a female friend of mine was particularly piqued that I should take an interest in Jesus. I didn't know any apologetics or even that much of the Bible, to be honest, but in our conversations, I found myself curiously defending the gospel and telling her about the hope that she can have in Jesus. Over the years, we had many debates about the person of Jesus, suffering, and hell. I continued to grow in my faith, but she remained fairly agnostic. Then something changed. I learned that our father had developed a serious illness. She still didn't know what to make of Jesus, but she began to be curiously open to prayer. And so we prayed. We prayed every day for his healing, and it felt, it really felt like God was listening and she was making some progress. Eventually, his sickness got so bad that she decided to go home and to take care of him. She left angry with God for not answering our prayer. And I was left speechless, not knowing what to say. What do you say? And in a feeble attempt, wanting to be prayerful and obedient, I offered her my Bible as a source of comfort. But she refused it. Not knowing what else to do, I promised her that I would pray for her and her father on my knees every day that she was away. And true to my word, I never missed a day. We lost contact for a bit, but what I didn't know was that God was actually listening to my prayer and radically drawing her to himself while she was away. 
I learned only later that one evening, in a moment of sheer weakness, she felt a pressing need to have a Bible. And so she went out and purchased a small New Testament from the dollar store. Imagine that. And from that evening onwards, she read and read and read about the mystery of Christ. I had the privilege months later to see this woman be baptized. And in her testimony, she shared these words. She said, I had known a few Christians before, several of whom I would consider close friends. And yet in all the years of friendship, no one had told me about the gospel until God sent Tark. It was a word sweet to my soul, but crushing to my heart. I don't think I've ever prayed so steadfastly for any unbeliever in my life. But I want to tell you that God listened to my prayer and God used my humble, feeble, clumsy speech to proclaim the gospel when I didn't know how to do any better. By God's grace, this woman is now a Christian and she is my beloved wife. This matters profoundly for gospel witness. God listens to prayer and God answers when we are obedient. Men and women, if you feel uninspired to share the gospel, I invite you to see afresh what it does in people's lives. It really changes people. The freedom of the gospel is bringing in our city and the world is just astonishing. Would you pray for the gospel to go out into the world? And then would you speak the gospel for the good of your neighbor? It really matters. Some application. What are we to make of this passage from Paul? What is he asking us to do? Well, two things. Pray for the good news and speak the good news. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you might think it's weird that Christians should care so much about your conversion. We really do. We're a weird, messy bunch of people, but we love you and we want you to know Jesus. We really do. If you're curious about the gospel, would you consider connecting with our church? We would love to walk with you in wisdom and with graciousness to hear your questions and journey with you, as Paul says. For the Christian, Paul says here to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. If you are here struggling to pray in a way that it's steadfast, could it be that you are lacking a spirit of watchfulness or a spirit of thanksgiving? I'd invite you to take this seriously, to be watchful, I think we're automatically drawn to the things that we feel most burdened for. We want to pray for these things. Open your eyes to what's wrong in your life, in your neighborhood, in the world. Listen and read about those who are suffering and those who are marginalized. Take time to learn about the global church and what's happening in the mission field. Tonight, we are going to pray for the global church. Tonight, this is a wonderful opportunity to learn about the mission of the gospel and to pray for it. It is Pentecost. Please come. It is important that we do this. This takes effort, yes, but step into the shoes of the most vulnerable in our society, and I promise you, you will be broken to pray more. There are women and children being trafficked right now. There's genocide, disease, and persecution happening all over the globe. What are you watching? What are you watching? I need to tell you that your prayer life will only be as broad as your vision. 
If you concern yourself with nothing but your own life, your own career, your own aspirations, then you will seldom be drawn to pray for anything more. Instead, be watchful, as Paul says. It matters. Have thankfulness in your hearts also. Take time to consider the beauty of the gospel and thank God for your part in it. If you really understand what you've been saved from, how could you not desire this same good news for others around you? How could you not be thankful? This is what spurs our prayer. Fill your heart with thanksgiving to God and prayer will overflow from you. Be watchful and be thankful and your prayer will grow steadfast. Second, speak the good news. God has entrusted you with the most important mission and it is vital that you should carry it out. Today, we are celebrating Pentecost. On this day, a group of timid, ordinary people were praying for the mission of the gospel and God's Spirit came upon them with power, with real power. The same Spirit is right now alive in you and He desires you to powerfully and courageously declare the gospel to outsiders and others. He will empower you for this. Trust Him. But you must also be obedient. There are some of us, I think, who find comfort in being surrounded by only Christians. See from this text that God has called you to walk with wisdom towards outsiders. You are not to be a holy huddle. Make friends with those outside of the church. Find ways to get to know your neighbors. Make good use of the time. Others of us, I think, are fairly comfortable interacting with outsiders, but we're afraid to risk spiritual conversation. To you, this text commands obedience. You are to learn how to thoughtfully and persuasively represent the gospel to your colleagues, friends, and family. Do this. Would you do this? Let me end with this. Paul here in this passage claims that time, not just money and ability, has been given to you to steward well. How might you make the best use of your time in this season? What if instead of just praying for COVID to end, you would also pray that the Lord would enable you to embrace this season wholeheartedly and make the best use of this time? I wonder, what might the Lord do with that? Be steadfast, ask of the Lord, and then let him ask of you. Pray for the good news to go out, and then you be diligent to speak it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good news that you have offered to us in Jesus. We ask that this same spirit who rose Jesus from the grave would now be a work in your church, that we would be diligent to pray for this good news, and that we would be diligent to speak it. I pray that this good news and gospel would go out into the nations with power and with clarity for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we have a few moments now for Q&A, if there's any questions. This is, I think, from last week. Pardon. If so much depends on our prayers, how does prayer not become another form of works? That is such a great question. Um, It's easy to think that because God is calling me to pray and so much depends on it, then this is just another work. But prayer, by definition, is dependence and reliance on God. It is impossible, I think, to pray 
within the spirit of Jesus in a way that this would become a work. If prayer is reliance and dependence on God, your salvation, if I could say so, is reliance and dependence on God. Prayer is in that same spirit. I don't think in the right way of understanding prayer that this could become a work. Thanks for your question. Should we take the vaccine or not? Um, This is outside the scope of this sermon, but we'll interact with you later. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our salvation. Is this the same as being a guarantee of our salvation? Can we be sure of this? AKA, if the Spirit is in me, am I saved? Uh, Yes, our denomination believes that. We believe that uh, everyone whom the Spirit regenerates, who the Spirit causes to follow and believe in Jesus, um, is, is surely saved. This is what the Spirit does. The Spirit is our guarantee. And yet, at the same time, Paul and Peter, uh, many of the apostles call us to be diligent in our calling to, uh, to work at the Christian faith, to pray, to read the Word, to do all these things. It's not that um, it's not one or the other, but that these two things together harmonize um, and bring us uh, to the end in perseverance in the Christian faith. I'll do uh, one more. This is very long. Wondering about any advice you have for how to continue talking to relatives or longtime friends who know the gospel and are completely uninterested, perhaps even to the point of asking that it not be brought up anymore. How do we balance respecting and maintaining the relationship while also being aware of the truck headed their way? Referring to your example. That's such a good question. I, I hear your... I hear your difficulty. This is so hard when it's with, especially for those we love, those who are close to us. I would say pray for them. Pray for them earnestly and diligently. I think sometimes when people reject the gospel, um, they don't really know full well what they are rejecting. And we ought to be sure that they understand. Um, I've had to have some very uncomfortable conversations about hell with people who don't know Jesus. It's super uncomfortable, and I hated it. But we got to a point in our relationship where even though they didn't necessarily believe in what I was saying, they knew that I loved them, and I trusted them, and they trusted me such that what I was saying to them was received in a spirit of love, even if they disagreed. And so I would say that to you. Pray for your family. Uh, Continue to be diligent to speaking about um, to them about the word, maybe maybe not the way that uh, they want it to be heard here, but in your words and your deeds, uh, these things proclaim the gospel too. But yeah, I would say labor in prayer. Uh, I think that's that's about all we have time for today. But I'll let Jeff lead us in a prayer of reflection. Thank you. <laughs>